0: Okay, so welcome all to the next session of the Proceedings of the Aristotelian Society. It gives me uh, enormous pleasure uh, to welcome Victoria McGeer uh, from Princeton and ANU, who will be talking to us this evening about uh, intelligent capacities. Thanks very much. Great. Thank you so much. I'm going to, I think I'm going to stand here, that way I can see back into the, uh into the gods back there. And uh, I'd like to thank you all so much for coming today because I understand I'm competing with the football. <laughs> <laughs> Bad time of year. I know it's also busy in other ways, so I, I'm really uh, delighted to be here uh, talking to you all. It's a great pleasure and an honor. Um, so I'm talking today about intelligent capacities, which is a term that I take from Gilbert Ryle, who's famous for distinguishing between two types of knowledge, often called practical and propositional. Um, Ryle's terms, of course, for these types of knowledge were knowing how and knowing that. In fact, (coughs) in uh, his 2003 address to the Aristotelian Society, Paul Snowden called this distinction between these two types of knowledge Ryle's most lasting philosophical legacy. Well, I'm gonna slightly dispute that today. I am interested in knowing how, but I'm interested in, uh, not for this distinction that philosophers have become lately quite interested in, um, but to understand, to think <coughs> about Ryle's understanding of knowing how as a, as a dispositional property of agents. Um, for Ryle's, uh, I think in Ryle's view, knowing how was nothing more, or is nothing more than a dispositional property, a dispositional property called an intelligent capacity, but it's a dispositional property of a fairly distinctive sort. And so my interest in the talk today is to think about intelligent capacities in this Rylean way. Now, to give you a taste of Ryle's concern with that, um, here is a passage I quote from the concept of mind. It's on your handout. I hope you all have a handout. Um, It's quite a detailed handout, so I hope it gives you something to take away from this talk. So here is the passage from Ryle. What is involved in our description of people as knowing how to make and appreciate jokes, to talk grammatically, to play chess, to fish, or to argue? Part of what is meant is that when they perform these operations, they tend to perform them well, i.e. correctly, or efficiently, or successfully. Their performance comes up to certain standards or satisfies certain criteria, but that is not enough. The well-regulated clock keeps good time, and the well-drilled circus seal performs its tricks flawlessly, yet we do not call them intelligent. We reserve this title for persons responsible for their performance. To be intelligent um, is not merely to satisfy certain criteria, but to apply them, to regulate one's actions, and not merely to be well-regulated. A person's performance is described as careful or skillful if in his operation he is ready to detect and correct lapses, to repeat and improve upon successes, to profit from examples of others, and so forth. He applies certain criteria in performing critically. That is, he is trying to get things right." Now, that's a long passage I take from Ryle. I hope you understand why I do as the talk proceeds. What are dispositional properties? Well, very generally, they're just properties of things that explain regularities in behavior how things do or would behave under a range of circumstances. So the well-trained seal and the well-regulated clock both have dispositional properties, one by way of training, the other by way of design. (laughs) But so does the person who knows how to do something. Their know-how explains the regularities in their behavior, but with a difference. So the purpose of my talk today is to explore that difference. What I'm going to do is draw upon Ryle, because I find his discussion of this quite suggestive. But I just want to say that my purpose really isn't to engage in an exegetical debate. It's rather to develop and and defend a view of intelligent capacities that challenges us, I think, to enlarge our contemporary understanding of the metaphysics of dispositional properties generally. So I don't really have much at stake in saying this was Ryle's view. Um, I'm not staking myself on that exegetical project. So here's my plan for what I'm going to do today. I'm going to say a bit more about the general shape of this problem, understanding the distinctive nature of intelligent capacities against the background of dispositional properties more generally. Then in the second section I'm going to consider why an account of these capacities, understood as dispositions, matters in the context of a more specialized debate about responsible agency. And I'm going to point to a hard problem that I think arises for those who try to defend a dispositional account of the capacities that are acquired for responsible agency. I'm then going to return to a consideration of Ryle's contribution, as I understand it, to the problem of understanding the metaphysics of such capacities in order to try and address this hard problem that I raise in section 2, and then, in a final concluding, Section 4, I'm going to consider how the Rylean view I developed in Section 3 actually gives us the resources to solve the problem, or at least address the problem, that I'm going to raise in Section 2. So that's the sort of broad outline of the talk. So without more ado, first section, the problem of intelligent capacities. So I think it's important to note that Ryle introduces the term intelligent capacities as a term of art is to mark a distinction, as he saw it, between different types of second natures or acquired dispositions. These are all his terms. Mere habits on the one hand versus competences or skills on the other. This is all Ryle's terminology. I have some examples of mere habits um, versus competences and skills on the handout in the two boxes there. Habits are things like walking, reciting the alphabet, Uh, presenting arms. Rao was very keen on these military metaphors, as we all know, or metaphor military examples. Those are habits. On the other side, we have these competences or skills, as he called it, such as mountain climbing and target shooting, map reading, calculating sums, or of course constructing philosophical arguments. Now notice that all of these, this is a miscellany kind of list of of things that people... creatures do perhaps, notice that all of them are manifestations of agency. As I said, they're all things that people do. And I mention that because I think it's a common thought that we can and should distinguish between mere dispositions on the one hand and abilities on the other, on the grounds that abilities are somehow agency involving. Objects have mere dispositions, that is to say propensities or tendencies, Um, For example, to break when struck, to conduct electricity, to spontaneously decay, and so on, sometimes called passive powers in the more traditional literature. Agents, on the other hand, have these active powers, powers that are essentially linked to their beliefs, desires, and intentions, and that manifest in action. Of course, agents, quae objects, also have dispositions, these propensities and tendencies, to break when struck, to conduct electricity, and so forth and so on. But those aren't things that agents do. Now, that's an important distinction in the family of dispositional properties, I think. And I'm going to come back to it again later on in the paper. Um, But it's not the distinction that Ryle himself is highlighting. His distinction is within this genus of acquired abilities. As he says, this is another quote from Ryle, Habits are one sort, but not the only sort of second nature. The common assumption that all second natures are mere habits obliterates distinctions which are of cardinal importance for the inquiries in which we are engaged." Now, to remind you, Ryle's inquiries have to do with the nature of mind, and in particular with how qualities of mind, that is intelligence, are manifested in distinctively complex patterns of actual and possible behavior. And by that, by the way, by behavior, Ryle was including internal operations, as we all know, covert behavior, as he called it, as well as mere muscular action, um, overt behavior. So his interest was in the higher order dispositions of people, that is to say, intelligent capacities. Um, But I just want to notice, again, that his focus was not on tracking how ordinary people conceptualize these matters. As he says, it's a common assumption. Um, Common assumptions about these matters are misguided. So his focus, I think, is rather on showing how careful attention to everyday phenomena can lead to a more sophisticated conceptual grasp of the underlying nature of the properties in question. Okay, so what are these everyday phenomena as they relate to marking out the distinctiveness of intelligent capacities as compared with mere habits now, Ryle's distinction? And here I think Ryle made three observations. First, uh, the most commonly cited one, that intelligent capacities are invariably multi-track dispositions. As he says, they're dispositions, the actualizations of which can take a wide and perhaps unlimited variety of shapes, multi-track dispositions. Second observation. In exercising such capacities, people are responsible for what they do in a distinctive kind of way. That is to say, they work at honing and developing such capacities, even as they exercise them, thereby instantiating a dynamic form of reason responsiveness, um, to use a kind of contemporary way of thinking. And the third observation Ryle makes is that we need feedback from the environment preferably of a relatively distinctive kind, what Ryle called training as against mere drilling or conditioning, where training encourages the agent to think critically about how to improve upon their own performance going forward, thereby developing the intelligence of their intelligent capacities. So what do those observations mean about the underlying ma- nature of these higher order dispositional properties? Well, I'm going to come back back to that question in more detail in section three below. But now I just want to emphasize um, the following point. Remember that Ryle's ultimate goal was a naturalistic one. He aimed to show that there's nothing more to being intelligent or having a mind than having a rich array of dispositional properties, especially of this characteristically complex kind. Whatever you may think about the ultimate success of his project, that was his aim. So in one fundamental sense, Ryle regarded dispositional properties as all of a piece, all naturalistically respectable, no matter how complex they, they get. Goes for habits as well as intelligent capacities. So I take his mission to a being to show that a more sophisticated understanding of dispositional properties could cure us of our lingering sense that mind must be something special in nature, a seed of metaphysically mysterious occult powers and properties, um, that it takes special understanding or special explanation um, to understand. So with that in mind, consider now a long-standing, though more specialized, debate over what powers and properties are required for agents to be morally responsible for what they do. Incompatibilists hold that such power and properties must be metaphysically occult in just the way that Ryle would have disparaged. Compatibilists, on the other hand, generally beg to differ. In fact, one recent strand of this compatibilist resistance more or less recapitulates Ryle's central message, that a more sophisticated understanding of dispositional properties can cure us of our lingering sense that special occult powers of mind are required to account for responsible agency. So in the next section, I'll review this overall debate, explaining how so-called, this is Randolph Clark's term, the so-called new dispositionalists hope to deliver on making sense of responsible agency in naturalistic terms. And by the new dispositionalists, Clark had in mind people like Michael Smith, Michael Farah, and Cadre Vivalen. And those are the people I'll be referring to in, in this talk. Now, I think the project of the new dispositionalists sadly fails. But in my view, it's because they don't have a sophisticated enough understanding of what intelligent capacities are in the sort of Rileyian vein that I'm going to develop. So I'm going to try and solve the problem that arises for the new dispositionalists by talking about a different way of conceiving of dispositional properties in what I think of as a Rileyan way. Okay, so now onto the meat of the paper the new dispositionalists. And to, uh, since I, as I said again, I feel very sorry for pulling you away for the soccer. So what I'm going to start with here is a dramatic interlude. I hope to keep you entertained. <laughs> so here's my dramatic interlude. You find yourselves at the movies one day, caught up in the narrative intrigue unfolding for you on the silver screen. The plot has just taken a dramatic turn. As we see our heroine, Nell Fenwick, hand over her meager savings to a smoothly convincing Snidely whiplash. Despite a few pinpricks of conscience, Snidely has just regaled the ever-sympathetic Nell with a pathetic tale of how he needs the money to care for his poor sick mother, who in fact is perfectly healthy and living in Tahiti. That cretin, we think to ourselves, he's just told her a bare-faced lie in order to get the money out of her. He knows it's an unconscionable thing to do. He could have told her the truth about his gambling debt, but he decided, he decided not to. What a jerk. Now, I hope that you, like me, see that as a sort of perfectly quotidian piece of fault-finding reasoning, accompanied maybe by a certain amount of snidely directed outrage. Of course, um, Bad guy dramas depend on our seeing snidely as not compelled to lie or unable to tell right from wrong. He's a normal, albeit badly behaved, human being, fully blameworthy for his dastardly deeds because, intuitively, here's a crucial thing, he could have done otherwise. But what is the status of that familiar intuition? Well, now we come to the hoary old philosophical challenge. To square this intuition with a deterministic vision of the natural world. In that vision, as we all know, the history of the universe, including all the events causing and constituting human action, unfold precisely in accordance with natural law. And of course, that's true whether those laws are deterministic or otherwise, or indeterministic, doesn't matter. The critical point, after all, is that human agents have no special causal powers enabling them to alter or affect this unfolding history, hence no way of making possible any other event trajectory. So on one straightforward metaphysical reading of things, the intuition is simply false. Snidely could not have done otherwise. Now, incompatibilists, as we all know, are deeply moved by this point. By their lights, moral responsibility turns on whether the deterministic vision is false and the intuition safe on that expensive metaphysical reading. Snidely is only responsible by his own efforts, choices, decisions. He could have changed the way the actual event trajectory unfolded. And since this is ruled out on a deterministic picture of the world, we either abandon that picture and admit the existence of seemingly exotic agent causal powers. That's the libertarian move. Or we embrace that picture and give up on any substantive notion of moral responsibility, the hard determinist move. Now, compatibilists of course, vague to differ. And to this end, they pursue two rather different strategies, I think. The first is simply to discount the centrality of the you could have done otherwise intuition to a substantive notion of responsibility. We can just cast it off. Um, but the other move is to try and embrace the intuition, but insist on giving it a naturalistically acceptable interpretation. Now I think that second strategy is more straightforward, but it depends on coming up with a naturalistically acceptable interpretation that's both plausible and philosophically defensible, i.e., it resists, you know, certain range of counterexample or even deeply considered objections. And here's where the new dispositionalists, so-called, come into the picture, bringing to the table a more refined understanding of dispositional properties. For the, the dispositionalist strategy, the new dispositionalist interpretive strategy is simply this. When we say Snidely could have done otherwise, we needn't be implying that he has any extraordinary agent causal powers to shape and so potentially alter how events unfold in the actual sequence. We may simply be focused on characterizing an actual feature of his psychology such that he would have behaved otherwise under a range of relevantly similar Counterfactual conditions. I hope that's all relatively familiar ground to all of you. In short, on this kind of approach, we're concerned with Snidely's actual ability or capacity to track and respond to moral reasons. But we understand that capacity in straightforwardly dispositional terms. Here's a representative quote from Cadre Vivalin's work. We have the ability to choose on the basis of reasons by having a bundle of capacities which differ in complexity, but not in kind, from the capacities of things like thermostats, cars, and computers. These capacities are either dispositions or bundles of dispositions differing in complexity, but not in kind, from dispositions like fragility and solubility, Does this dispositional understanding of Snidely's moral reasoning ability really do justice to our everyday concerns? Why should it matter to us how Snidley would have behaved under a range of counterfactual conditions in determining whether or not he deserves blame for what he actually did in the here and now? And here's the dispositionalist response. Of course people's dispositional properties matter to us and in much the same way that the dispositional properties of objects and others' creatures matter to us. They they shape and constrain how we're able to interact with them. So if I know or believe that the vase is fragile, then I'll handle it with care. If I know or believe that the dog is housebroken, then I'll let him wander freely around the house without supervision. And if I know or believe a person is morally reasons responsive, not compulsive, not an addict, not off her head, then I can engage in a whole range of interactions with her that would otherwise be out of the question. That, of course, was essentially P.F. Strawson's point when he talked about the participant's stance. The problem is that response may satisfy in a general way, but it doesn't really get to the nub of the issue, or so a critic might argue. And that's because our fault-finding judgments seemingly relate to what an agent does not generally or overall but in a given situation. If Snidely is blameworthy for lying to Nell, then we suppose he had the capacity to operate as he should have, morally speaking, in that very situation. He simply failed to exercise it. No excusing factor got in his way. That is to say, as it's sometimes put, he had the specific capacity to do right by her. So to make their account work, I think the new dispositionalists must give satisfying answers to two more exacting questions, and I have these again on the handout, one I call in a rather unlovely way the precisification question, and the second the dessert question. So what do I mean by the precisification question? I've got to find a better term for that, please give me, help me out with this. The question is sir, simply this, what precisely distinguishes the person who lacks the capacity in a given situation? from a person who has the capacity but simply fails to exercise it. Um, I want to emphasize that pressing that question does not deny the general truth that people can have unmanifested dispositions. It simply asks for a more precise specification of such possession conditions, since a lot hangs on it. After all, Snidely is blameworthy, only if he has the capacity and fails to exercise it. And this is where the new dispositionalists really hope to make strides, because in their view, the older compatibilist accounts foundered on this very issue. But the way those accounts foundered, on their view, turns out to reflect a more general problem specifying the nature of dispositional properties. And that's whether we're talking about fragility or solubility or something as complex as moral reasons responsiveness. But, they say, pointing to the vast literature on dispositional properties, philosophers have made real progress in understanding that more general problem. So all we need to do is apply the general solution to the particular problem at hand, and we'll have a satisfying (coughs) answer to this precisification question. So what is this general problem? Okay, this is uh, going through a vast literature very quickly. So again, I hope you'll, you'll forgive me for that. So philosophers have long agreed that true ascriptions of dispositional properties are somehow tied to the truth of counterfactual claims. <coughs> Standardly, that the bearer would manifest a disposition in the nearest possible world or in some nearby set of possible worlds in which suitable triggering conditions are present. But attempts to analyze what it means to possess dispositional properties in such standard counterfactual terms have founded on this reef of counterexamples leading to two key observations. First observation, something can have a dispositional property and yet not manifest that property under its usual triggering conditions. That's because the the manifestation of that property might be masked or blocked by a variety of of, uh, factors. So the associated counterfactual claims are false of examples given here are that a sorcerer stands by, ready to cast a protective spell over a fragile vase, so whenever it's about to be dropped, it's protected by this spell and never shatters. The second observation is that the associated counterfactual claim might be true, and yet the thing in question lacks the requisite dispositional property. Its presence is simply mimicked by other factors that sustain the standard counterfactual profile. Again, you have your sorcerer standing by ready, let's say, to cast a shattering spell over a gold bar whenever it's about to be dropped. So it looks like it has the dispositional property of fragility, but in fact, as we all think intuitively, it does not. Now, three lessons are drawn from these observations that are pertinent, I think, to this discussion. The first is that standard counterfactual claims associated with dispositional properties are merely indices of those properties. Um, They articulate the standard way we have of telling whether or not something has the requisite dispositional property. But they don't determine or constitute what it is to have the dispositional property. So the second observation related is that Dispositional properties are still, by many philosophers' lights, although this is hardly universal view, constituted properties. But the constituting base is some actual intrinsic, or in some cases, extrinsic, that is, relational property of the bearer of the disposition. So these are constituted properties constituted by some other feature um, of the bearer. For instance, its molecular structure in the case of a fragile glass. And the third observation is that while dispositional properties are still rightly viewed as having a characteristic modal profile, that profile needs to be spelled out in terms of whole rafts of possible worlds in which the bear retains the basis property, some particular triggering condition is present, and for multi-track dispositions remember that those triggering conditions may be multiple. and. Additionally, any of a number of mass or other disruptors are actually absent. So the, disposi- the modal profile, the modal account you give of what it is to have a dispositional pro- property is correspondingly complex. So now, if we apply these lessons to Snidely, we get the sophisticated, putatively counterexample resistant account of what it means for Snidely to possess the specific capacity to do the right thing and not lie to Nell on the very occasion that he lies to her. To wit, Snidely possesses some intrinsic psychological property, presumably neurally realized, such that were he to retain that property in a whole raft of possible worlds in which similar opportunities for self-interested lying occur, and no mass or disruptors are present, that is, there are no evil neuroscientists, irresistible temptations, internal drug-induced neural blockers, nothing like that, then he would think and act in a morally appropriate way. So he has to possess this intrinsic psychological property such that he would, under those conditions, act in the morally appropriate way. Can we be sure that Snidely possesses such a modally robust property? That may, sound, that may sound as if it raises a number of epistemic worries, but I'm going to put those to the side for a moment because I think there's a more devastating problem for this approach. And I'm going to call it the hard problem of responsibility, um, which is a term that um, Philip Pettit and I gave it in some, a joint paper we published on this topic a couple of years ago. So this problem comes to the fore in considering the second exacting question I said that the new dispositionalists have to address in making their account fly. And that is what I will call the dessert question. So now, if Snidely is blameworthy for lying to Nell, then we not only suppose he had a certain capacity that he failed to exercise, we have to regard that failure as down to him in a normatively substantive way. That is, we take Snidely, the agent, to be responsible for it. It's his fault. And that's why he's properly blamed for it. How do the new dispositionalists make sense of that phenomenon? Recall that Snidely is responsible for lying to Nell only if he had not some generally accepted legitimate excuse for his lying. Right? We put that to the side when we said he had the specific capacity. He wasn't compelled. He wasn't off his head. He wasn't overwhelmed by a Tourette's-like tick or something like that. No, he had the specific capacity. But on the new dispositionalist account, if Snidely had that capacity, then he must have been affected by some additional mask or block that prevented the manifestation of his reason-responsive disposition in the circumstances in which he lied. Maybe it was some glitchy neural circuitry maybe some brute chance. But in that case, why shouldn't we respond to snidely just as we would in typically excusing conditions, perhaps with sympathy, disappointment, distress, sadness, but certainly not with fault-finding blame? Because the difference between the sort of standardly accepted mass or blocks, the legitimate excuses, and these glitchy causal circumstances that explained why he lied just seems to be normatively moot. Now, at this point, it might seem appealing to lean on a distinction I noted earlier between capacities or abilities and mere dispositions. To wit, capacities or abilities are agency involving insofar as they are essentially linked to an agent's beliefs, desires, and intentions. Hence, they're voluntarily exercised, and so within the agent's control. Now that leads to the natural thought that Snidely failed to exercise the relevant capacity because he didn't try. That's why he's to blame. But now we ask, why is it that Snidely didn't try? On pain of regress, we would want to source that in a distinctive capacity that Snidely failed to exercise. For then we have to ask why he failed to exercise that capacity, and the whole problem arises again. He failed to try because he failed to form the appropriate beliefs, desires, and intentions. And he failed to form those mental states in the presence of a capacity to do so because the manifestation of that capacity was master-blocked by some glitchy neural circuitry, some brute chance. That is, through no fault of his own. So he's not to blame. In fact, if you think about it, I think we can reinforce this conclusion by recalling what makes it the case that Snidely has the relevant capacity in the first place on the new dispositionalist view. He must possess an intrinsic psychological property such that his not thinking and acting in morally appropriate ways is out of character, as we might character, uh, colloquially say. But that implies that he's really something of a Dudley do-right, dressed up in bad guy Snidely clothing. That is, he's basically a decent guy, who's simply the victim of glitchy neural circuitry or, as incompatibilists are fond of saying, of circumstances outside of his control. That makes our blame seem doubly inappropriate. In sum, the new dispositionalist may have given us a plausible, naturalistic account of what makes Snidely a responsible agent, that he has the right sort of dispositional profile, but we can hardly say he's blameworthy in light of that fact he's hardly worthy of a normatively substantial kind of blame that presupposes a fault-finding notion of desert. That's the hard problem of responsibility. And it appears to leave us with the following unpalatable choice. Either we give up on a naturalistically acceptable dispositional account of the kind of intelligent capacities that plausibly underwrite responsible agency, or we, do without, or we do without vindicating the fault-finding dimension of such responsibility that intuitively justifies desert-based blame. That's our choice. Unless we can develop an alternative, naturalistically acceptable account of intelligent capacities that, considered in the context of responsible agency, vindicates the phenomena of desert-based blame. And that's the guiding question I'm going to pursue for the rest of my talk. So now, shift gears. Yet again, Section 3, rethinking intelligent capacities from what I'm calling a Rileyan perspective. To warm up to this alternative Rylean way of thinking about intelligent capacities, let me begin by revisiting that basic distinction I mentioned in Section 1 between mere object-centered dispositions and acquired abilities. Where in view, remember, that includes both habits, and intelligent capacities. Though this isn't Ryle's focus, there's one dimension of difference that deserves special emphasis, in my view. And that is that acquired abilities are dispositional properties that take a special kind of work, namely practice, on the part of agents to develop and sustain. Consider by way of contrast some iconic dispositional properties of objects, for example, fragility, solubility, conductivity, and so forth. These properties are relatively stable features of the objects that possess them, principally because they're constituted by relatively durable intrinsic features of the objects themselves. We agents can perform various operations on these objects to alter their intrinsic features. For example, supposing this was a fragile glass, um, we can can make it more durable, um, less fragile by tempering it. So we can act on the glass to make it less fragile. But the objects themselves don't do that work. Left to their own devices, they either have the intrinsic features, the intrinsic disposition constituting features, or they don't. Now think about acquired abilities. For example, reciting the alphabet, tying shoelaces, calculating sums, speaking a language, constructing philosophical arguments. These two could be conceptualized as dispositional properties constituted by some perhaps relatively complex intrinsic feature of the agents that possess them, the psychological basis of these dispositional properties. But agents themselves have to work at developing such intrinsic features. And importantly, they do so by repeatedly manifesting some approximation of the dispositional property in question, and then reshaping how they behave hence their own intrinsic features, in light of the feedback they receive from the environment. That's what we mean by practice. So already we can see that some dispositional properties are quite distinctive, insofar as they're developed by means of their bearers, continually working at their successful manifestation. Thankfully, fragile objects don't have to practice at being fragile, um, sorry, practice at shattering in order to become fragile. But that's not all. Acquired abilities, whether they're now I'm talking about habits and intelligent capacities, take practice to sustain. That is to say, and I think this we can all be familiar with this phenomenon. They get rusty with disuse. Think of that. Think of the sports you used to play in your youth. The musical instruments you were so good at. The ice skating. Well. I'm from Canada, so the ice-skating you did with ease and fluidity. No more, <laughs> alas. <laughs> what explains the degradation of these once-mastered abilities? Well, I think this is a biologically reasonable hypothesis. While agential abilities or dispositional properties constitute at least in part by intrinsic features of agents' brains, these intrinsic features, presumably cortical networks, are essentially fragile, I'll call essentially fragile, in the sense that they maintain their integrity dynamically on a use-it-or-lose-it functional basis. It takes practice to keep these things going. So the upshot of this, that even in the case of physical abilities, it's not just the body that gets out of shape. Cortical networks get out of shape as well. And they only remain in shape so far as their practitioners continue to manifest the dispositional properties in question, that is, by means of exercising their hard-won abilities and receiving feedback that reinforces the required cortical circuitry. If you just think about it, how much do we practice speaking a language? We practice it all the time in day-to-day encounters. And I think a lot of this uh, practice of our own dispositional abilities is we lose sight of because we have to use these dispositional properties on a daily basis. And so we, don't, we lose sight of the way in which we're actually practicing these things all the time and thereby sustaining the properties in question. Now, how did that dynamic feature of agential disposition escape systematic philosophical attention, at least in certain quarters? Well, I think a number of factors are probably at work. I've just gestured towards one but I think one in particular is relevant to this discussion. I think it stems from embracing a methodological framework that privileges atemporal analysis over intertemporal insight. So we're content to look at time slices of agents, considering how they're constituted in the here and now, such as to possess the dispositional properties much as objects do. That is, properties characterizable in terms of having a modally robust profile. And from this perspective, worrying about how agents or objects come to have or sustain those properties is simply beside the point. That's because we're taking this atemporal methodological perspective. But I think that atemporal perspective obscures the distinctive nature of abilities in two key respects. First, as I've already noted, it obscures the distinctive nature of the intrinsic properties that constitutes the agent's abilities in a given time slice. That is, these are feedback-dependent, dynamical structures that require their bearers to take a more active role in ensuring they're maintained. And the second um, feature that's obscured is the more robust sense in which acquired abilities are agency-involving. Now, philosophers tend to fixate a lot on the fact that acquired abilities are voluntarily exercised. But I want you to notice that, when we're talking about acquired abilities, like speaking a language, there's an aspect of that ability that is not voluntarily exercised. That is to say, I can't help but understand people who are speaking to me, to me in the language that I, that I know. So we tend to focus on the fact that acquired abilities are voluntarily exercised, not noting how there's a sort of perceptual or epistemic part of the ability that is not voluntarily exercised, not in any case, abilities, I think, are more deeply agency involving than this. So far, as agents have to take responsibility for developing and maintaining their abilities. That is to say, they require the effort practice. Now, of course, that effort is going to characteristically take a different shape in the early stages of acquisition, with agents having to consciously and intentionally focus on guiding and shaping their behavior in light of the feedback they receive from their environment. Um, but as they gain in proficiency, practiced behavioral and cognitive routines become <coughs> habitual or entrenched, allowing subpersonal systems to assume a greater portion of control and keeping these routines on track. Agents can thus direct more of their conscious attention to other things, simply initiating these routines as the circumstances require. But the ease with which they generally reproduce these routines should not obscure the fact that they still have to expend some effort in practice, that is, in exercise, in order to maintain those entrenched dispositions. Okay, now we come to the distinction that Ryle has been so keen to emphasize, a distinction within the genus of acquired abilities between habits and intelligent capacities. Habits, as I've already indicated, I think, are essentially entrenched cognitive and behavioral routines reproduced with ease and not much conscious attention or effortful monitoring by the agents involved. As Ryle said, when we describe someone as doing something by pure or blind habit, we mean that he does it automatically and without having a mind to what he is doing." By contrast, intelligent capacities or skills are exercised in a consciously attentive way. Skilled agents think what they are doing as they engage in the relevant activity. For example, mountaineering or target shooting or reasoning through a problem. They guide and shape their behavior with care, vigilance, and criticism. These are all Ryle's terms. Um, Attentive to how things might go wrong and in continuing awareness of feedback they receive from the environment. But why should all that be necessary? After all, once a certain degree of proficiency is reached, These skilled activities must surely depend on agents having likewise entrenched a variety of cognitive and behavioral routines such that they could operate more or less on autopilot. Indeed, isn't that the very signature of skill or expertise, at least according to some people such as um, Herbert Dreyfus, I think, maintains a view rather like that. But on Ryle's view, importantly, it is not. Though skilled behaviour will certainly involve entrenched cognitive and behavioural routines, they they had better not be executed mindlessly. And that's because agents have to adapt such routines to cope with unexpected difficulties or novel situations, whether on the fly or over time. That, after all, is the very essence of skilled behaviour, on Ryle's view. But in order to produce such behaviour, agents have to remain attentive to the circumstances on the ground. Even more, they have to respond to those circumstances with care, judgment, and creativity, searching for better or more efficient ways of operating while always being ready to modify their behavior in light of the feedback they receive in those novel circumstances. So now we get to Ryle's central point. In exercising an intelligent capacity, the agent won't be simply reproducing a pattern of behavior or routine or habitual behavior. Instead, the agent will be producing a pattern of flexible, adaptive, creative behavior over time as she tunes and retunes her activity in continuing response to the world around her. In short, in exercising an intelligent capacity, this is Ryle's expression, the agent is still learning. Now, how do we think of this sort of capacity in dispositional terms? Well, notice that I think we've already laid the ground by emphasizing a key difference in the underlying nature of the intrinsic properties that realize object-centered dispositions on the one hand versus acquired abilities on the other. The key difference, remember, was that intrinsic features constituting abilities, presumptively here cortical circuitry, are dynamically sustained through practice, that is, by way of the agents actively reproducing the target behavior on a fairly regular basis. But now we're going to add the following wrinkle. The intrinsic features constituting intelligent capacities, again presumptively cortical circuitry, are not dynamically sustained over time. Rather, they're dynamically altered or developed over time as the agent continues to modify what she does in light of the feedback she receives. Could such a capacity be adequately captured within a traditional time slice framework for characterizing dispositional properties? Well, clearly not. From the time slice perspective, the situation would look something like as follows. At time t1, the agent is psychologically such that she possesses a modally robust property, call it alpha. And then at a subsequent time t2, she is psychologically such that she possesses a different modally robust property, call it beta. But this entirely misses how the two time slices are connected in virtue of the agent's underlying psychological constitution. By contrast, if we take an intertemporal perspective, then this salient fact emerges. In possessing an intelligent capacity, the agent is psychologically such that at any given time, she is primed to engage with the world in ways that potentially drives her own development. She is driving her own development. So in the right sort of situation with the right sort of feedback, we can explain the transformation she undergoes from time T1 to time T2 as part and parcel of her manifesting her intelligent capacity, a capacity that's thereby developed and enriched by virtue of its own dynamic nature. And notice that in different situations with different kinds of feedback, of course, the trajectory of development will be different. So by way of winding up this discussion, let me briefly elaborate time, on this intertemporal view by connecting it with three observations that I said Ryle makes about intelligent capacities in section when I mentioned in section one. Actually, I think I may be only focus on two of these reasons of time. The first is that higher grade dispositions of people are invariably multi-track, not single track. Remember Ryle said, they are dispositions, the exercise of which are indefinitely heterogeneous. Now on the standard view, this can be modeled in a time slice fashion with an incredibly rich and varied range of manifestations already encoded and ready to go under suitable variations and triggering conditions. That's the picture. So we spell out the nature of this dispositional property, at least in principle, in terms of how the agent would behave as she is constituted here and now in this broad range of alternative possible worlds. On the intertemporal picture, however, it's a different story. The multi-track or heterogeneous nature of the agent's disposition is more realistically spread over potential developments in the way she's constituted here and now, given a trajectory of suitable interactions with her environment. So it has this essential temporal component. So for example, the skilled mountaineer has the capacity to reach the summit of Everest because he's both climbing and also teaching himself how to climb in circumstances of this sort. That's, a, that's an example taken directly from Ryle. Second point, um, second observation Ryle makes, in order to sustain and develop an intelligent capacity, and this is absolutely crucial, The agent has to receive an appropriately rich kind of feedback from the environment. That is the kind of feedback that stimulates and motivates the use of her critical faculties in shaping her behavior. That is specific feedback regarding pros and cons of her performance that allows her to develop her own understanding of how to modify and improve what she's doing going forward. Um, Recall that that's in contrast with habits which can be just inculcated via mere conditioning. Moreover, since the exercise of an intelligent capacity is always a work in progress, the need for this kind of critical faculty never goes away, no matter how skilled the agent becomes. And that's another crucial point, She's always needing this feedback from the environment. So now, short concluding section, relatively short, the hard problem revisited. So the upshot of leaving our discussion of moral responsibility earlier was to leave us with this unpalatable choice. Either we give up on this naturalistically acceptable dispositional account of the capacity for moral reasons responsiveness, that's prerequisite from responsible agency on this sort of view, or we admit that having such a capacity and simply failing to exercise it, as in the case of Snidely, offers no substantial justification for dessert-based blame. How much progress have we made on that problem? Well, at least as much, I think. We now have a rival dispositional account of what it means to possess an intelligent capacity, one that's dynamically (coughs) intertemporal rather than statically atemporal. And here's one reason to prefer the intertemporal account. I think it allows for a more natural reading of Snidely's presumptive character in My Little Drama. Recall that one surprising consequence of the atemporal time slice approach is that Snidely turns out to be not such a bad guy after all. He only possesses the relevant reason-responsive capacity insofar as he possesses some intrinsic feature such that holding it constant just as it is now, he would think and act as he should towards Nell in this rich range of possible worlds. So he seems more like this Dudley Do-Right character. But the snidely I envisioned in my drama is a bad guy. He's snidely whiplash. He's not a psychopath, of course but he's certainly not someone who has this atemporal, modal profile of a Dudley do-right. So in what sense does Snidely possess the capacity for moral reasons responsiveness? Well, my answer is in the dynamic intertemporal sense. On this Rileyan view, Snidely has the relevant capacity just in case he's the sort of agent that willy-nilly takes an active role in maintaining and developing his own dispositional property of responding appropriately to moral reason. And he's that sort of agent, simply in virtue of possessing the kind of cortical circuitry that's dynamically sustained and or critically modified by way of receiving feedback from the environment in consequence of the way um, he acts. But now, how does that solve the hard problem? For even if we suppose the evil doing snidely has a capacity for moral reason responsiveness in this intertemporal sense, How does that make him blameworthy for lying to Nell that is genuinely worthy of dessert based blame? Now in responding to that challenge, I think we need to consider again the sort of feedback Snidely requires in order to maintain or develop his intelligent capacity for moral reasons responsiveness. Recall that it has to be such as to stimulate Snidely's own judgment and concern regarding how he should think and operate in the moral domain. So it must instruct him in some reasonable detail as to how he's gone wrong. And it must also call upon him in an energetically motivating way to exercise better judgment and self-regulating regarding his activities going forward. Ah, enter the phenomena of dessert based blame. I think it has five interrelated features that make it particularly apt for giving snidely the feedback he needs, all powerfully expressed, in my view, via as it so often is, the heated, finger-pointing claim, you could have done otherwise. First, as I hope I've made clear, this kind of interjection is characteristically infused with anger. And that's an attention grabber for creatures like us. When it's directed towards Snidely, it says to him loudly and clearly, you've done something wrong. Second feature. It focuses on the fact that Snidely has done something wrong. That is, the failure is sourced in his own agency, in the way he exercised his own judgment or regulated his own behavior. You could have done otherwise, we say, aiming to drive that message home. Third point. It's concerned with detailing how, how Snidely has gone wrong. You could have done otherwise, we say, pointedly making clear the precise scope and dimension of Snidely's failure. Fourth feature. It insistently claims that Snidely had, and continues to have, what it takes to do better, namely a capacity for moral reasons responsiveness. You could have done otherwise, we say, expressing our conviction that this capacity is a persisting feature of his nature, both as he was constituted then, and as he's constituted now. Fifth feature, it insistently calls upon Snidely to actually think and do better going forward. It demands some appropriate response to the feedback it supplies, whether by way of explanation, excuse, justification, apology, restitution, and or reform. And notice that it tends to persist until Snidely himself rises to the occasion, thereby demonstrating some palpable improvement in his capacity for moral reasons responsiveness. So notice that although dessert-based blame is often presented as a purely backward-looking, fault-finding exercise, the contention here is that it has this forward-looking drive or purpose. And that may sound contentious, but let me just cite some authority here on my side, namely Adam Smith, who in Theory of Moral Sentiment said, to bring him back to a more just sense of what is due to other people, to make him sensible of what he owes us and of the wrong that he has done us is frequently the principal end proposed in our revenge, which is always imperfect when it cannot accomplish this." Okay, so I think these five features of dessert-based blame are perfectly consistent with a metaphysically undemanding capacitarian reading of you could have done otherwise. But on the intertemporal view, the message conveyed by this claim is not simply a modal one focused on telling the failing agent where we think She's located in the space of logical possible worlds, as the new dispositionalists seem to think. But nor is it a fault-finding judgment that remains relentlessly fixated on how the agent failed to exercise some putative causal power and make things otherwise in the actual past, as per the insistently condemnatory incompatibilist view. It conveys, instead, a sense of agential possibility going forward, linked to the assumption that exhortation generally makes a difference to the developing nature of an agent's intelligent capacities. And that recapitulates a theme emphasized in my joint work with Philip Pettit again on the hard problem of responsibility. Our claim is simply this, that to see an agent as worthy of being blamed after an offense is no more (laughs) mysterious than to see that an agent is worthy of being exhorted to do right before the event took place, the offense took place. These judgments likewise depend on seeing the agent as possessing a Rileyan capacity for reason responsiveness. It's because Snidely possesses an intelligent capacity for truth-telling that there's a point in exhorting him, or in his exhorting himself, to tell the truth before he acts, as he might try to encourage himself. And it's because of that same intelligent capacity that there's some point in remonstrating with him afterwards, or in his remonstrating with himself in the familiar routines of blame. So my last word, finally, (laughs) Um, I think with this dynamic intertemporal Rileyan account of intelligent capacities in hand, we have little to fear by insisting on a capacitarian reading of the irrepressible fault finding could have done otherwise intuition. Now incompatibilists may insist that we lose a deeper, more substantial sense in which wrongdoers deserve our blame if we don't indulge in the metaphysically more robust interpretation that requires actual in-the-sequence alternative possibilities. But let me just say here that I think the notion of dessert is normatively contested and contestable ground. Incompatibilists may say they're trying to make room for a more substantial notion of dessert, but their claim rings hollow, I think, when we see what little they have to offer us. We're reminded here of uh, P.F. Strassen's comment that it's a pitiful intellectualist trinket um, (laughs) held up to uh, do some work for us. By contrast, on the Rileyan account I defend, responsible agents deserve our blame to the extent that it plays some critical role in supporting and developing the very capacities that make for moral community. The feedback notion of deserved blame is thereby tied to the the very possibility of there being such a community, which is no insubstantial role, I think, for the notion of desert to play. So thank you.